Ave, and welcome to When in Rome. And now, cue the music. When in Rome is a podcast about place and space in the Roman Empire. This is episode LXXI, Ventus Silurium. I'm Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Peter Guest, an archaeologist with Vianova Archaeology. Ventus Silurium was a city on the western fringes of Roman Britannia, established to integrate the conquered tribes of the Silures. Its ruins are now part of the Welsh town of Caiwent where modern buildings are side-by-side side with the Roman archaeology. Here's Peter Guest. Ventus Silurum is a Roman city in Western Britain, in modern terms in southeastern Wales. It's uh, one of a couple of dozen public cities known from Roman Britain, but only the second from Wales. And it was the capital city, if you like, of one of these administrative territories that uh, the Roman province of Britannia was divided up into. Ventus Silurum in Latin means market of the Silures, and the Silures were one of four very large tribes that inhabited what is now modern Wales before the Romans arrived in Britain in the middle of the first century AD. The city was founded at the beginning of the second century AD, once the Silures uh, had been defeated and pacified. It was part of their political annexation into the province of Britannia. And it was the seat of government. It was also the centre of commercial exchange. It was a market, as its name suggests. And it was also the centre of Roman administration and of religion and all sorts of other aspects of Roman culture in a recently conquered territory. So it's really important for archaeologists who study the Roman period because it's um, all to do with how the Romans conquered and pacified and expanded their empire from the first century BC through to the second century AD. It gives us a really good glimpse in how the processes of Roman imperialism actually worked, because as I say, it was a seat of government, and it's effectively where the emperor's men, locals, and also from further afield, would have sat and governed the Silures on behalf of the governor in London, but also the emperor in Rome. Today, the name of the site is Caiwent, and it's a smallish village in southeast Wales, not far away from Caldicott and Chepstow and the city of Newport. Most of the Roman city is actually underneath green fields. So it's particularly important because unlike Leicester and London and York, for example, all sorts of other Roman cities in Britain which lie underneath medieval and modern cities, Caiwent doesn't. So it gives us a very good opportunity to undertake archaeological research to better understand the place, but also what it tells us about how Roman imperialism worked and about the history of Roman Britain. So you said that this was the territory of the Silures. I, I do want to ask about who they were, but what about mm -hmm. that particular site of Ventus Silurum mm -hmm. made a good place for a town? Yeah, the city of Venta sits astride one of Roman Britain's main roads. It's the road that headed west from the colony at Gloucester, 
westwards along the South Wales coast towards uh, the great fortress of Iscus, as the Romans knew it, which is modern-day Killian. So it's on an important road network. It's not very far away from the Severn Estuary, the Bristol Channel. It's about three miles away from the ancient crossing point of the Severn Estuary, which was at Sudbrook, which would have allowed you to get from what is modern-day England, not far from Bristol, over across into South Wales. It's at the very southeastern edge of what we think was the territory of the Silures. So a lot closer to Roman Britain, if you like, than to native Wales. And it seems to have been sighted there, partly because of its position between Gloucester and Killian. So its proximity to the fortress at Killian was very important. But it also seems to have been located not too far away from a couple of fairly large pre-Roman Iron Age hill forts, which might have been central places, important places for the Silures before the Roman invasion. So let's go into that then. Who were the Silures and how did they come to be Romanized? Mm. In Western Britain, there were a number of large tribes that inhabited the modern country of Wales. And these tribes, including the Silures, gave the Roman army a lot of trouble between the later 40s AD and then the later 70s AD. So for a period of around about 30 years there or thereabouts, most of the Roman army in Britain was actually facing westwards to try and deal with these very stubborn, it seems, very stubborn tribes in Western Britain. The Roman writer Tacitus gives us a very good account of the campaigns under three or four Roman governors that took place against the Welsh tribes. And the two that Tacitus and other Roman writers highlight as being particularly obdurate were the Ordovices in the middle of Wales, in central and up towards northern Wales, and the Silures in south Wales. And these Roman governors and their armies fought a number of campaigns over, as I say, three decades there or thereabouts, against these native tribes as they tried to bring them to heel effectively. And it seems that what the Ordovices and the Silures understood was that the chances of defeating the Roman army in open battle were fairly slim. And so they spent most of their time, as far as we can tell, trying to avoid an open battle against the Roman army and instead fought a series of guerrilla style campaigns, hit and run attacks against isolated Roman units, that kind of thing, which the Romans found very difficult to deal with. And in fact, they complained bitterly about not just the tactics of the native Britons, but also the landscape, the terrain of Wales at the time, which is quite hilly, and which allowed these war bands of tribesmen to make their hit and run tactics and then just to simply disappear into the landscape. So it took the Roman army a long time to effectively push the Silures and the Ordovices and the other Welsh tribes further west and to try and envelop them so that there was nowhere for them to go. And in 51 AD, we read about a great battle that took place between the Welsh tribes and the Roman army, which the Romans won. And they actually captured the British leader and his family and took them back to Rome. But that doesn't seem to have stopped the Silures in particular who carried on resisting the advances of the Roman army for another 20 or 30 years. So, I mean, remarkable, really. Even after their defeat, much to the Romans' amazement and shock and disgust, the Silures carried on resisting 
the so-called advantages of Roman civilization. And it took the Roman governors another 20 years or so to finally defeat the Silures and the other tribes in Wales, so that it was only by 77 that Wales could then be incorporated into the Roman province of Britannia. The two main tribes in Wales that had resisted the Romans for so long, they then became defeated peoples who had no rights under Roman laws and who effectively had ceased to exist as political entities. So the names of the Silures and the Ordovices sort of disappeared at that point in time because they no longer existed in Roman legal eyes. The Silures, though, were slightly different to the Ordovices because sometime later, probably around about 110, 120 AD, something like that, somebody must have decided that the status of the Silures should change from that of a defeated people to a free provincial people who could then be incorporated into the normal administrative network of the Roman province of Britannia. And so the Silures then reappear as a Romanized administrative unit in Roman Britannia, the equivalent in the UK at least to something like a county or perhaps a state, something like that. And of course, in that case, they needed a seat of government because they were part of the administrative patchwork of Roman Britain and they needed a capital city with a town hall where all of the roles and responsibilities of a people in a Roman province would be seated. So that explains how Ventusilurum came to be. There is no equivalent, for example, for the Ordovices. For whatever reason, the Roman authorities never allowed them, that particular tribe, to become a free administrative people uh, within the Roman province of Britannia. We don't know why, but there's no capital city of the Ordovices. There's no Ibitas, there's no county of the Ordovices, but there is of the Silures. Mm, sounds like they knew the right person to ask then. Yeah. It also sounds like they were a, a long-term problem for the Roman conquerors. I mean, I say that like it's a bad thing that they're a problem, but they'd probably see it as being a good thing. Did this merit special treatment or special supervision from the Romans after they'd conquered it? I guess putting a fort nearby was maybe a signal that they were taking their territory seriously. Oh, yeah, definitely. Part of the problem that the Romans faced in Western Britain was the resistance that the natives put up against the uh, Roman forces and a number of rebellions that took place, at least in the early years of the campaigns against uh, the Welsh tribes and immediately after. And Wales in the Roman period probably had a garrison of around about 25,000 men in it. Well, if you think that the Roman army invaded Britain with 40,000 men in 43 AD, that tells us that well over half of the Roman forces in Britain were concentrated in a fairly small part of Western Britain. These troops needed to be there in order to keep the Welsh tribes down. And the two main points of the Roman army's disposition in Wales were the two legionary fortresses at the northern and southern entry points along the coast in Wales. The northern one was the fortress at what is now Chester, and the southern one was the fortress at Caleon, which is only nine miles to the west of Cowent. So after their conquest and defeat in the late 70s AD, 
it's certain that the Welsh tribes, including the Silures, were probably governed by the Roman army. In many ways, the situation is reminiscent of more recent conflicts in the world, for example, in Afghanistan, where Western forces tried to subdue the natives by putting units across the landscape and governing the locals directly from those military sites. And the same was the case in Roman Wales, almost certainly. That carried on for the Ordovi case forever. But for the Silures, after about 40 years, as I say, somebody in London or in Rome must have decided that Silures merited governing themselves a degree of self-autonomy, and their status was changed to that of Kivitas, which meant that they then could rule themselves on behalf of the Roman Emperor, of course, but they had a degree of political independence, and that meant that they needed to have a council chamber, they needed a town hall, they needed a marketplace, and they needed all the other trappings of Roman urbanism and of Roman civilization. So if we could talk about the site then itself, you say it has the trappings of being able to run the territory of the Siluris or run that civitas, that state, as a capital city. What else does it have that indicates that this is your standard Roman town? It seems like this very much follows the rules, the directives that have been outlined by Vitruvius that we know so well about how you lay out a Roman town, doesn't it? Yes, it absolutely does. It has all of those elements that would have been familiar to Romans and to Roman writers as examples of Roman urbanization and of Roman civilization and culture. It has a main street that runs through it. There are gates at either end of the street that mark out the urban space. It has an orthogonal street grid that leads up where we have side roads that come off the main street uh, running through the center of the city. In the middle, the street grid divides the internal space of the city up into islands or insulae as the Romans knew them, which is where the buildings were located. The center of the city was given over to the Forum Basilica, which were effectively the marketplace and also the town hall or the city hall. There was a bathhouse, a very large public bathhouse on the other side of the street. There were temples in the center as well. There might have been an inn, a mansio, which allowed visiting dignitaries and messengers to stay overnight. But of course, most of the interior of the city would have been taken up with industrial and domestic houses for the general population of Ventasilurum. There was a wall that went around it that was constructed slightly later, but there were always limits to the Roman city so that everybody knew where the urban space began and where it ended. So in microcosm, Ventasilurum was a mini Rome in southeast Wales. It had all of the right buildings in it, where the various functions of how to be a Roman would have been performed, but on a very small scale. It's one of the smallest cities known from Roman Britain. It's only 18 hectares in size, and estimates of its population, that's always difficult to do, but it's thought that perhaps at its height, the population of Ventusilurum would have been in the region of 2,500 to 4,000 inhabitants, something like that. Is there any indication that there was previous settlement before Ventusilurum was laid down? I was wondering, the fact that it has been done very much in a cookie-cutter kind of way to yeah. the Roman plans kind of says that there wasn't that much there, but I was wondering what you found when you looked at the ground. 
Yeah, no, it's very much a new town. On a greenfield site, there is no evidence for any pre-Roman occupation underneath Ventus Silurum. What we have seen in the past is evidence for a small, probably commercial, industrial settlement, a village kind of settlement that was constructed at Venta or at the site of Venta about 50 years before the city was founded. And that appears to have been given over to the production of pottery, possibly to supply the army units at Killian and elsewhere in the expanding frontier in South Wales. So there is a small early Roman period settlement there that then seems to be replaced when the city was founded at the beginning of the second century AD. It had been thought once upon a time that there must have been a Roman fort at Caerwent, which would explain why the city was where it is. But despite repeated excavations and searching for this pre-city military phase, it's quite clear now that actually the city, as I said before, was founded on essentially on a greenfield site as a new Roman foundation. So what were the people like that lived there? I'm interested in particular in two kind of questions. One is if you've got indications that it was a wealthy place and i gather there was a bit of a a spectrum when it comes to this that some people would have been wealthy and some people not but just as a kind of overall impression and the other thing that i'm curious about is if there's things that make them distinctive to that part of wales so if you can kind of see that okay these are people who were noticeably of the Siluri still in some ways and have their own way of doing things or if they truly embraced becoming Romanized? Very, very good questions. And both of those are quite tricky to answer. And I might start with the second one first, if that's okay. But actually, before I get onto that, I think it's worth understanding how we know about Roman Ventus Silurum. We've known that there was an ancient city there for three, four hundred years. But much of what we know today about Venta comes from a series of campaigns over 100 years ago now, between 1899 and 1913, that trenched large parts of the interior of the Roman city and recovered the ground plans of numerous Roman buildings within its walls. Now, the plan of Venta Silurum effectively is a result of those late Victorian and Edwardian excavations. But the difficulty that we have with that is that at that time, archaeology as a field practice was in its infancy. And the main technique that was used by those excavators at the beginning of the 20th century were to drive long trenches across the site These were dug not by archaeologists because there were no such things as archaeologists in those days, but they were dug by labourers who were paid to shift as much earth as they could. And they would stop if they hit a wall or a floor. And then the excavator, the archaeologist or the directors of the project would then say, uh, ask them to follow the wall so that eventually you would get the ground plan of a particular building And by surveying that in and all the other buildings, you then got a sense of what the interior of the city might have looked like. But most of the buildings that they uncovered date to the later period of Venter's Roman history. So perhaps from the 2nd, 3rd and 4th centuries AD, we have very little evidence actually 
from the beginnings of Venter's history as a Roman city, when it's now clear many of the buildings weren't constructed in masonry, so can't be recovered in the same way, but they were probably half timber built and their remains are much more difficult to identify archaeologically. So the questions that you're asking, which are really interesting and really important, are difficult to answer because we don't actually have that much evidence that is relevant to those, those specific questions. But what we can see when you look um, outside the walls of Venta is that the impact of Rome and Roman culture and ideas in that part of Britain, in modern day Wales, the impact of these ideas was relatively limited. We don't find Roman material culture in many places in the countryside of Roman Wales. We find very few villas, for example. We find very little evidence for the spread and use of Roman pottery and therefore Roman culinary or cooking techniques. We find some coins, but we don't find as many coins as we might expect. So when we look at Venta and when we look at the landscape that Venta sits in, we get a very clear idea that there was very little take up actually on behalf of the natives of Roman civilization, of Roman ideas about how to do things. Whether that's because the locals, the inhabitants of the countryside actively resisted or rejected Roman culture is possible, but it might also be that the forces of Roman imperialism weren't really too bothered about what the farmers in the hills in South Wales what they thought about Rome or what they thought about Roman culture at all. So it could have been that perhaps they were too poor or it might have been that they weren't permitted to engage in the Roman economy and the Roman world as much as others were. Or, of course, it could be that the successors to the Silurian or, or Dovician resistance in the first century AD simply decided that Rome wasn't for them and that while they were officially part of the Roman Empire, they didn't take those next steps to actually become more Roman or more Romanized as time went on. But what we also see is that by the time we get to the third and fourth centuries AD, so perhaps 200 years after the city's foundation, even though it was a small place and even though it seems to have had a fairly limited population, Venta gives the impression of being fairly prosperous. There are large masonry courtyard buildings dotted throughout the interior of the town that have concrete floors and mosaics and decorated walls. The Forum Basilica, the town hall, seems to continue very nicely indeed into the late Roman period, as if, even though it was an island of Romanness in Western Britain, it still served as a relatively prosperous and wealthy place where those individuals, whoever they were, who had engaged in the Roman world, they could live or they could work or they could represent themselves in a Roman way perfectly adequately and without too much care, it seems, for whether their relatives in the countryside did the same or not. You know, we can think about the way people dressed, we can think about the gods that they worshipped. We can also think, very importantly, particularly in Wales, about the languages that these people might have spoken, the foods that they ate, the contacts that they had. All of these things were part of the sort of the Roman state of mind 
um, which in Southeast Wales only seems to have been adopted or adapted by a small minority of the population, whereas the majority appear to have carried on, not necessarily oblivious to the advantages of Roman civilization, but have either ignored it or been ignored by the Roman authorities. Mm, that's really interesting. It, it kind of makes it seem a bit isolated as well. It was a real frontier town in the Roman frontier. Yeah, no, definitely. We get that sense, I think, very strongly from the town walls. The walls around the city of Venta at modern-day Coent are astonishing. Uh, they're among the, I think, the most remarkable survivals from the Roman period in Britain. They stand today in places up to five metres in height, probably seven or eight metres high when they were originally constructed at the end of the 3rd century or the beginning of the 4th century. When you walk along the south and the north walls of the city, there are these great towers that look like bastions that were added in the middle of the 4th century. And when you walk around the town and then look at the countryside around, you certainly get a sense that by 300, 350, cities in Roman Britain were islands of Roman culture and behaviour. And you also get a sense that the inhabitants of those were nervous, perhaps, about the rest of the countryside that was less ordered and was more chaotic and was more native and perhaps a bit more British. So in modern day Kaiawent, how much of Ventus Alurum can you see now? It seems to be well integrated with each other, as in the Romanness of Ventus Alurum is a major part of the modern day fabric. Oh yeah, definitely. The road through the village follows the main Roman road that passed through the city 2,000 years ago or so. It's a small village among which you can see some remarkable remains from the Roman period. And when you add them all together at Coent is equal to any other site in Roman Britain and a lot of other sites in the Western Roman Empire. Not only can you see the walls that I talked about on three sides of the city, and they are astonishing when you walk around them for the first time, but you can also see the excavated remains of the Forum Basilica, the city hall and marketplace in the centre of the Roman city. You can see a pagan temple that was constructed in the uh, middle of the 4th century AD and a number of workshops and a larger townhouse on the fringes of the city too. So there are all sorts of things to go and see. All of these monuments are laid out and on display and have panels explaining the remains with reconstructions for you to see. The objects that were excavated, both by the late Victorian and Edwardian excavators, but also more recently, those are on display in Newport's Museum and Art Gallery and also in the National Museum in Cardiff too. So there's no museum at the site. There are only outdoor monuments to go and visit. Also, it's definitely worth going into one of those museums I mentioned to go and see some of the fantastic finds, including a number of mosaics. Coent has produced a surprisingly large number of late Roman, very fine mosaics that adorned private dwellings and um, other domestic spaces too. So Kaiwen's Roman past as the city of Venta very much dictates what the village is all about today and how it's grown or isn't allowed to grow. I get the sense that it's the sort of place where you'd need to be careful if you were putting up a back shed. 
You certainly would, and if you were to do that without the proper permission, you'd also <laughs> you'd also be uh, putting up your shed illegally, which I imagine isn't something that you uh, would obviously um, consider. Uh, of course in not. The, yeah. no, but in the UK, ancient monuments or sites like Cowent are protected by law. So much of the interior of the Roman city, which covers not just the modern village of Cowent, but also the fields around it, those are legally protected because they are designated as scheduled ancient monuments, which means that it is very difficult for the inhabitants to construct a shed in the back garden. In fact, if you wanted to put a tent up and put a tent peg in the ground, you would need to ask permission to do that officially. So everything is protected. You know, it's a really special site. And the fact that it survives in the way that it does today is remarkable. And of course, the Welsh government and also the UK government wants to see these sites protected and preserved for future generations. So although it's clearly frustrating on occasions for the inhabitants of Kaiwent and other similar places, the fact that we have these very strong laws that protect our ancient monuments is generally seen as a very good thing for future generations, including archaeologists. That was Dr. Peter Guest, an archaeologist with Via Nova Archaeology, and you have been listening to When in Rome. If you like this podcast, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any readily available podcasting platform. Please leave a review. They're very appreciated. You can like When in Rome on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page. And while Peter isn't on Twitter, you can follow me. I am at Nightlight Guy. The podcast is at Rome Podcast. When in Rome is funded by the kind support of you listeners, and in particular to Dean Pavitt of Melbourne, Australia. Ave to you. And Ave also to Ollie Julian, the composer of the music that you're listening to in this podcast. It's the theme music to the ITV show Plebs from Rise Comedy. That's it today for When in Rome. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.